thank you for that welcome. <laughs> that introduction was, uh, was awesome. All right. Um, I guess most people are not used to seeing me in this, uh, in this role, right? Uh, okay. But this month we've been talking about um, holy thoughts, um, holy words, holy sights, holy voices. And this is the last in the series of holy things, particularly that we're talking about. And essentially, we've been talking about the word of God really permeating our mind and permeating our hearts. And um, today, I'll be speaking on holy thoughts. We'll be doing a lot of Bible reading, maybe a little more than we're used to uh, so far, because we can't, in my opinion, we can't get the word of God deeply into our hearts, or we can't develop holy thoughts without connecting to a holy God through his words. Um, I, I bring this afternoon's message to us uh, slightly reluctantly because you would, um, I believe you will understand a bit more by the time I'm done. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25. I believe uh, we have we can see them on the screen. The two scriptures we're going to start with. Let me see if I can turn this. Excellent. I'll put this here. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Psalm 36, verse 9, the psalmist speaking, for with you is talking about God, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open our eyes of understanding. Help us to receive your truth. Give me utterance. And let your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to start with a few questions. One is, how real is Jesus to you? And the other question is, what if real Christ discipleship did not exist on a liberal conservative continuum? What if being a disciple of Christ means something different from what Christianity is today? These are three questions I want us to hold on to and contemplate. We will come back to those questions at the end of my sermon. So this afternoon, I'd like to examine these questions and their relevance to developing holy thoughts. A desire for holy thoughts is a desire to love God. It's a desire to think as God thinks. Holy thoughts are not our thoughts. They're God's thoughts. They, they aren't always rational. If you've read the Bible, the Bible is not completely rational. They aren't always popular, but they are always godly. And if we want holy thoughts, we must be ready to serve a holy God and be willing to know him. And so I'm going to ask a few more questions. Why are holy thoughts important? Are they optional for us? Can we develop holy thoughts? Or can we develop holy thoughts overnight? Aren't holy thoughts for those ultra Christians, those who want to be preachers? Can't the rest of us just continue to leave as we please? God loves us anyway, doesn't He? I would like to approach this by first of all examining information and knowledge. 
We'll start from there. Uh, Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. It's a, it's a scripture that we used to quote in the church I, I, I went to when I lived in Nigeria. I'm from Nigeria. I grew up in Nigeria. And we always ended service with Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And if you look at that scripture, it says, and I, I like to quote it from the King James Version, because I grew up reading the King James. Apparently, and this is one of the things I've noticed in America, people don't like the King James. I guess you're still fighting the British over that. I don't know. But still, it says that you may observe to do. The, the expression observe to do is what I want to zone in on. Because we live in a time when there is a mixture, at least in everyday language, between being informed and knowing. And I would like to go back to a more biblical definition of information versus knowing. And I, I, I would like to give the example of somebody who sat at home or sat in the library for weeks, maybe even months, studying carpentry, but has never made a single piece of furniture. And a carpenter who has never read a book, but has makes furniture every day. The person who read about carpentry is informed, knows all the techniques from an information point of view. But the person who makes furniture every day that's the person who knows. In the Bible, to know is information plus experience. And many times, you have come across many Christians who are informed but really don't know because they have not experienced what they say they know. And there's a difference between those two. I and mean, we're going somewhere with this. It is harder to be knowledgeable than to be informed. I mean, I'll give you another example. The person who sits at home, who is protesting by clicking on a link, protesting a situation, and the person who goes to a rally, gets arrested by the police, is thrown in jail, and who goes through the process of actual protesting, knows the protest. The person who clicks on the link at home is just informed. There's a difference between information and knowledge. And that's why there's a scripture that comes to mind, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, and I quote this portion, Paul speaking about certain people, ever learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's a difference between learning. You would expect that somebody who has learned knows. But no, Paul says ever learning. These people ever learning but never coming to the knowledge so you can be very informed. The person who's learned is informed. But Paul is saying you can be informed, but you don't necessarily know. And, and when you look at that definition, then we get to understand what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 22, or verse 32. He says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Put that in the context of what I just talked about. When you know the truth, when you are informed, plus the experience of that information, of what you've read in scripture, then that truth that you have come to know, not that you are informed about, is the one that sets you free. Because I've seen a lot of people wrestle with this scripture and say, I've read it, I've read the scripture, I'm informed about it, but I'm not free. 
No, there's a difference between being informed and knowing. And that's a scripture says, they that do know their God, they shall be strong and they shall do exploits. I, I like quoting the King James. I, I wish I quoted a more contemporary version. They will do great things because they know God experientially, not just being informed about who God is. Remember, we're still talking about holy thoughts, but I'm setting a stage for a bunch of things that we're going to still talk about in this sermon. As somebody who's raised in a different culture, where a culture where the wisdom of the old is respected, as someone who has not and did not grow up subscribing to the postmodernist thinking, I, it has been my observation, and I'll say this, I've lived in the U.S. now since 2011. It's been my observation that a, lo- a few Christians in America, at least the ones I've interacted with, are informed about the word of God. And of those, many could know the word of God better. This is just my observation. I've actually met Christians who are proud of their ignorance of God's word. And we would get to the why this observation matters. Because on the other hand, I have met people who are so informed that explain to me why God, the word of God is not true and it's outdated. I feel somewhat amused when, and this is a personal thing, when I hear people deny things that the word of God states to be true because it doesn't make sense to them or because some Christian group has misused it. Things like speaking in tongues, healing the sick, prophesying the future, casting out demons, and so, and so on and so forth. You see, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues, about 28 years ago. And I, I preached my first sermon on December 1995 when I was a freshman in college. And in my over almost 23 years of preaching the gospel, I've laid hands on over 100 people who, have, who speak in tongues. I have laid hands on the people, or people who have been healed, and hands have been laid on me, and I have been healed. I have been in meetings with prophets, Bible-level prophets that I've, a lot of people have not experienced, who have prophesied the future in detail, and months later, years later, exactly as it was said, it happened. And so I would have to deny my Christian experience to actually agree with people who say these things are dated or true or untrue. And this is the experience of many Christians I grew up with. The word of God is true. Because you haven't experienced it does not mean that it is not. And because somehow we live in a, especially in this part of the country, in a, half the people I know have a PhD. People are really smart around here, but sometimes people have got to the point where they become smarter than God. You see, I bring this up because it is impossible to replace your thoughts with God's thoughts when you question the veracity of God's word itself. It is impossible. If you, if you imagine that your thoughts are smarter than what the word of God says, why would you want holy thoughts? Why? Holy thoughts belong to God. They are from God's word. And so if you assume that you are smarter than the Bible, why, why would you want it? And so 
Because there are too many people, and it, sometimes it scares me personally, who question the word of God. I, I can understand when you question the translation of the Bible from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the original languages that were, the Bible was written, in, written into the contemporary English language. But to question, to question the thought pattern, the thought pattern of the person, of authors of the scripture and say that they are not smart enough, which I've heard with my own ears, people tell me, I, I hope I never have such audacity. Because <laughs> without a change of heart, it is impossible for those of us with these attitudes to receive God's word. You can't sit in judgment over God's word while claiming to be submitted to him. And you can't be a disciple of Christ without being submitted to the written word of God. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, Jesus, when he was confronting the devil, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says that every scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for doctrine. It's useful for reproof. It's useful for exhortation. And it gives one, a fourth thing that I do not remember right now. It's useful for training. So we cannot come to God's word and want, say we want to have, have a serious conversation about holy thoughts if we really want to know holy thoughts and not just be informed about it without submitting to God's word. I was inspired to write and post about a month ago uh, on Facebook uh, this post, and I'll, I'll read it out to you. Can, can you put it on screen, please? I'll read it out verbatim from here. It says, we worship our heroes and we look for the books that inform their thinking. Abraham Lincoln... Albert Einstein, Bill Gates, whoever. Now imagine if we could read the books that informed Jesus' thinking. How awesome would that be? But we have the books that informed Jesus' thinking. When he was tempted, he quoted from Deuteronomy and Psalms. When he spoke his first recorded sermon, he quoted from Isaiah. When he taught, he spoke from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Daniel. When he was tested by Pharisees and Sadducees, he referred to Jonah, Micah, and Hosea. When he overturned tables in the temple, he quoted from Jeremiah. When he was captured, he quoted from Zechariah. Can you go to the next one, please? When he talked about his death, he quoted from Psalms. Many who say they are Christians don't even read the words of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they claim they love him. As if one could try that with their spouse, not knowing their birthday, their preferences, and their joys and pains, but still assure them that you love them. How much more God, the creator of all things. And some would rather hear what others have to say about Christ rather than get to know him for themselves. So they'll read a, verse, a few verses here and there, but spend the majority of their time listening to and reading books written by all shades of theologians and atheists so they can know what the other side is thinking, who often say stuff that tickles their fancy. So they bandy around the latest theological terms, anointing, cruciform, incarnate, grace, etc., Terms that have often been taken out of proportion to distort the gospel. Since they don't know the Bible themselves, they can't debate the theologians, especially when they're popular and well-respected ones. You can check the reference on your time, Hebrews 5.14. Now we have a population of well-misinformed Christians who can argue about their perceived inconsistencies in the Bible, 
but don't have the first clue about what it is to be a disciple of Christ. I contend that no matter how nice or good intention one is, it is impossible to love Christ without spending daily quality time in prayer and reading and studying the word of God. There is no shortcut. Anyone who teaches otherwise has actually, hasn't actually read the words of God or is a damn liar. Amused as Jesus did in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is one of the most interesting portions of scripture for me. When Jesus himself was musing, I was like, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? The question is, will he find faith in you? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. And this is my contention. Please move to the next slide. It says, if Jesus needed to know the Bible, which was the Old Testament in his time, how much more us? Because I've heard a lot of people, you quote people, other people in the scripture, they'll be like, but what did Jesus say? I'm like, have you actually even read what Jesus said? Because most of the people who talk to me about this, I know from experience, I've almost read the Bible through this year again. They have not actually read the Bible, at least not recently, themselves. Because when you read the Bible and hear what Jesus had to say, we would have a little more respect for his word. And this is it. Jesus, whom the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, Jesus. The very word made flesh, John chapter 1, verse 6. That Jesus had to read the Bible. And I went through all the references in the Bible of everywhere he quoted in scripture, and that's why I gave all those references. And even if you don't agree with all the books in the Bible, at least read the books that Jesus read. If he indeed is your hero, if indeed he's your Lord, because we, many churches across America and around the world put right on top, Jesus is Lord. But I don't think we know what that means. We're informed, but we don't know what that word means. Information and knowledge, very different things. Do you know what it means for Jesus to be Lord? Because unless he's Lord, holy thoughts don't mean anything to you. You're just going to be informed you would not know. And, and this is why, when we look at the Old Testament, the covenanter has not changed. The covenants may have changed. The Old Testament covenant is different from the New Testament covenant, but the person who formed those covenants has not changed. And that's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and Malachi 3, 6, God speaking about himself, he said, I am God I, am, I never change. Numbers 23 and verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it, will he not do it? Has he spoken it, will he not bring it to pass? God hasn't changed. The covenant is how he relates with us. But he is constant. And so if you want to see the nature and the character of God, you need to know the God's word. You can't know the nature and character of the God that the Bible speaks about without knowing the Bible. And we live in a generation and a time when we're so informed about so many things that it's sometimes mind-boggling that people can be in church for years and have no idea who God is. 
I want to talk a bit about the, the next point I have to talk about may shock a few people. You see, and this is it. Holy thoughts are not equivalent to moral thoughts. Moral thoughts are mostly holy, but not all holy thoughts will fit into society's ideas of morals. And I want to explain that a bit. bit, And let's look at what Jesus had to say about discipleship. Because in this church, we talk a lot about discipleship. Because that's what Jesus called us to be. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20. We are called to be disciples, but we have created society over thousands of years after following Christ, has created what we now call Christianity. And if you understand words, words, they started meaning with something when they started. We were never called to be Christians. We are called to be disciples of Christ. Jesus didn't say, go and make Christians. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And we forget that Christianity is about Christ but we are satisfied to stick with whatever denomination says Christianity is rather than what Jesus says Christianity is. And if we, want to under, if we want to be honest and have a true conversation about Christ, we need to go back to the foundation of what this is about. Let's look at Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. The cost of being a disciple. And these are Jesus' words himself. This is not somebody else quoting Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Listen, before I continue reading this portion, if there was any true cruciform lens to look at discipleship, this is it. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you and saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is going to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still long away off and will ask terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is a tall order. This is a high calling. And Jesus says, count the cost. Because... And I think it's one of the problems we have with Christianity because we've misrepresented it. We say, come, just come. But Jesus says, take your time. Sit down and count what this requires of you and decide whether you want to go this route. And Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said. This is a teaching from Christ. Let's look at his examples because I like to look at scriptures. Jesus, his words give both teaching and example. And I'll read this out to you. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16 to 24. If you want to pick a Bible, please pick one and please follow me on this scripture. Matthew chapter 19. If you're picking a Bible, please do. Matthew chapter 19 from verse 16 to 24. Just then... 
A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I to, to do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones he inquired? Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle that for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And one of the things I want to point out that this guy actually did, he loved his neighbors as himself. It's one of the things we talk about a lot. Yet Jesus said he wasn't even qualified to be a disciple. He wasn't qualified to enter the kingdom because there was still one thing that was ahead of him in his heart. The man's money was ahead of God. And this is something, this is, this is something not, nobody can come and answer this question for any one of us. You can't answer this question for me. I can't answer this question for you. But in our hearts, we need to sit down and decide, are we disciples or are we just playing church? We can keep playing church. It's fine. But are we disciples? There's a recommendation that Jesus gave. And we either stand by it or we choose to work in a way that we're chosen for ourselves. I'll give one more example. Luke chapter 9 from verse, from verse 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He said to another, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts a hand to the plow and looks back. is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' standard. Unfortunately, we don't hear much about this in the church anymore because it's a little hard. And if you saw anybody who lived by this standard, would you not call them a fanatic? Would you not call them crazy by today's standard of Christianity? The truth is, by our standards, by society's standards, we will, that person will be a fanatic, but that person will please God. By that standard, that person will be a disciple. By Jesus' standard, that person will be a disciple of God. And one of the things that was said here, I know it's maybe not even as hard in this culture. In my culture, you have to give your parents a proper burial. And so there's a huge impact there when Jesus says, if God, if Christ gave you an assignment to go preach the gospel and you had to go choose between that and burying your father, Jesus says, to, obey, to be my disciple, 
Go preach the gospel that I've asked you to do and let the dead bury the dead. Those are hard words, but those are words that Jesus said. But we've had other people help us misunderstand them because sometimes we think that we can soften the word of God and change it. But this is what he said. This is Jesus' words. This is not an apostle quoting Jesus. This is Jesus' words. These are examples based on the teaching that I just presented earlier. A Christian isn't always a disciple, but a disciple is always striving to be, a, to be Christ-like. When I'm just a Christian and not a disciple, I'm the star of the show. It's about my plans, my goals, my family, what God can do for me. When you're a disciple, everything revolves around Christ, everything. He's first and he's preeminent. And it is this lack of teaching about what a disciple is that has made Christianity important in society. It's hard to testify about something you haven't experienced. It's hard to convince others about something of which you have no real conviction. This is the reason a lot of Christians are essentially false witnesses. Because they say they know God, but they're just informed. They tell other people's stories, but have no personal experience with Christ, and are not convinced that he's the only way to God, as his word says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. But today's Christianity runs away from that and says, maybe there are other ways. But you would have to put words in Jesus' mouth to believe that. And so we have people who can tell that certain scriptures are not true, but they can hardly point to a scripture that has actually worked and produced godly results for them. They read into scriptures what isn't there, but they won't leave out what is actually there. Many people don't know him. The question for all of us here today is, do you? The foundation of holy thoughts is built on a reverence for a holy God and a belief that his word is true. The foundation of holy thoughts is built on a reverence for a holy God that, by the way, none of us has ever seen, and a belief that his word is true. So it's, it's actually an oxymoron to say, I believe God and then not believe his word. Can you imagine you talking to your friend, John, talking to Amy and say, I believe Toye, but, but I don't believe Toye's words. How do you believe Toye? When you don't believe Toye's words. Essentially, that's what Christians have done. I believe God, but I don't believe his words. Like, how do you take on God's thoughts when you don't believe his words? God cannot be divorced from his word. The more of his words we take in daily, and the more time we spend in prayer, the more our thoughts reflect his. Slowly at first, but with consistency, they eventually produce godly actions. But if your intelligence is your God, it's impossible to submit your thoughts to God's. So again, I ask these questions. How real is Jesus to you? What if real Christ discipleship did not exist on a liberal conservative continuum? What if being a disciple of Christ means something different from what Christ is or what Christianity is today? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
I ask that as your word has come forth, let it germinate in our hearts. Let it bear fruit, Lord. Let your word bear fruit in our lives and in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Can the band please come up?